Welcome to our new episode of the next show with trend watcher and author David Metten from London, event expert and program curator Monique van Dusseldorp from Amsterdam, and me, Ina Feistritzer, chief editor of Next, and calling in from Hamburg. Thank you for watching today. I hope you're all well. And now you also know what is behind our backgrounds. <laughs> We're actually not living in little white boxes, but produce our monthly show in three very different, lively urban neighborhoods. Monique, tell me about, about your location. It looks amazing. Well, I'm, I'm really on the outskirts of Amsterdam. In fact, it's not even Amsterdam. It's called Demon. Demon is a village that was there 200 years before Amsterdam even arrived. But where I am at is an industrial park, you know, um, across from a metal recycling plant and a garage and a huge warehouse. Um, but my office is in a building called Phoenix. And, you know, as you saw, it's filled to the brim with culture, artists and designers on one side and three dark kitchens on the other. There's a Mexican bakery right next to me, actually. So, um, and I was working from home for 10 years, and this corona thing has driven me towards an office. So, so happy to be related to that. You can't tell, you know, honestly, it's the best thing I've ever decided. Yes. There you go. David, where are you? Well, I am in a corner of southeast London called Blackheath, um, which is interesting because there's a dark legend that it's called Blackheath because in the 1300s during the Black Death, this is where they buried the bodies. They they bought they brought the bodies out of London and buried them up here on a hill and ended calling ended up calling that place Blackheath. It turns out that it's likely historians think it's likely that that is not true. So it's a very early example. It's a 14th, 15th century example of fake news. But I do enjoy telling the story, nonetheless. You're a good story there. Yeah. You know, let's not let the truth stand in the way of a good story about Blackheath. Well, our studio here in Hamburg is actually located in Altona, a place that used to be the second biggest city of Denmark in the 18th century and later an industrial area. Um, today, it's a melting pot for workers, craftsmen and women, creatives and hipsters, and has a very interesting blend of working, shopping and living spaces, um, which I think actually could be a very good blueprint for filling dying inner cities with new life. So this mixture of life there. And I think this diverse spot is the perfect place to send out our little show to you. As with our next show and with the content and events we produce at Next in general, we aim to shift your perspective on digital business and we hope to trigger some thoughts and invite a diverse range of people to the stage. Today, we were actually planning to welcome entrepreneur Dara Dots to our stage. Unfortunately, she had to postpone her appearance to a later date. But if this year has taught us anything, it's how to be flexible. So we're super happy to introduce you to another creative thinker and doer, Christina Bonitz, Managing Director at the Digital Agencies in Ashrada. Christina is a radical thinker and a talented doer and has been an inspiration for us at Next for a long time. She also con contributed to our little next book. And so we are very grateful that she spontaneously said yes to join us today. But before we welcome Christina to our stage, let's find out what's been going on out there. I will hand over to David and Monique now and join the live audience in the chat. So Monique, tell us what caught your attention lately. Well, you know, it's such an interesting time. I mean, we're, we're, it feels like we're 
coming closer to the end of this corona pandemic. You know, you never know, you never know. But it's also a time where we, we start to see some of the huge changes that have, you know, happened in the last year. And one example of this is actually happening in the Netherlands. There's a proposed law which will make working from home a right. And it's not only in the Netherlands, but, you know, that's, that's interesting because if working from home is a right, it, it sort of redistributes all the office workers and the people that can work from home. And, and there will be so many new services and ways coming up to, you know, to bring those people together digitally and online. So this, this, this working metaverse, so to speak, is uh, being, you know, starting. It's starting right now. And, and one of the examples, I think, was uh, the project Starline. Google just, you know, released a very beautifully made video this week. You know, it's it's video booths which have installed, they have already installed them in several several Google offices where you can see co-workers and friends and families to chat with each other as if you're on the other side of a window. You know, it's 3D, life-size, it's very well lit and everything. I mean, that kind of being online together I think that will grow enormously the moment huge businesses are sending so many people home because they have to, according to government, the right to work from home. Very interesting for my office. David, what about you? That's fascinating. And I, I've been thinking a lot about um, how we'll be online together as well this week. I mean, specifically, I've been thinking a lot about avatars and pseudonymity. There's this rising school of thought that the future of our life online is pseudonymous. In other words, we're not going to live our lives online using our real names and our real faces. We're going to live pseudonymous lives using avatars. And the reason people think that we're going to want to do that is to protect ourselves from reputational damage. So to protect ourselves from big institutions and also the raging kind of online mob, the Twitter mob, um, damaging us reputationally or cancelling us, I suppose, um, because these people say that if your avatar, your virtual identity was to be damaged or cancelled by the mob, there would be mechanisms in place to allow you to kind of transfer the followers you built up and the trust you built up in some way to another identity, that all gets very complex. But that's part of the thinking. And another part of the thinking is that, you know, we're living so much of our lives online now, we're doing so many different things that we want to construct um, different identities for different versions of ourselves online. And there are some people who think, look, in a hybrid work world or remote work world, uh, people are even going to work using an avatar identity. They're not going to work using their real name and their real face. They'll be known to their clients and their colleagues and the world out there through an avatar. And this trend is intersecting with another really interesting trend, which is, uh, and we've talked about this before on the show, you know, a couple of times, um, the rise of virtual humans, the rise of these kind of animated, photorealistic, um, virtual human beings. There's this incredible virtual human on Twitch called Miko, um, and she's sort of like a very realistic, essentially cartoon character, and she's controlled by a real human being called the Technician, who's wearing a kind of motion capture suit so that everything she does, Miko also does. And Miko, this kind of virtual human has 700,000 followers on Twitch, is hugely popular, has made the technician famous. I mean, it's an incredible story. So check that out. 
it, to see what I'm talking about. There are some people who think we're all going to have our own Miko. We're all going to have our own virtual human avatar um, in the years ahead. I'm not totally persuaded. I think it's a fascinating idea and I'm looking forward to hearing what Christina thinks about it. Um, yeah, so much to discuss. Christina Bonitz is a managing director at Sinnerschrade Digital Agency and Sinnerschrade is the founding company of the next conference. So uh, very happy. Now these days they're part of Accenture Interactive. And Christina aims to inspire and lead courageous companies, that's a big compliment to all the clients, into desirable futures. Okay, what future do we want? We're going to ask her. By helping them create impact for people, their business and the planet today and tomorrow a pretty broad remit, and by transforming them for the better and for good. Well, she has been working in the intersection of human sciences, business, culture and technology, and she explores these opportunities via evidence-based future thinking and building. Well, that's super important, evidence-based. And she has been doing so for the past many years. So developing a new strategy, portfolio, new product creation, or by paving a company's journey into a customer-centric organization, customer-centric. Some of the words will come back in this conversation we're going to have. She's also a frequent speaker and already mentioned by Ina, she contributed to our book, The Great Redesign. So welcome, Christina. Christina, welcome Hello. to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, great to be here, even though it was a bit spontaneous, but I'm going to improvise. <laughs> it was spontaneous, it was improvisatory. Some may even say innovative. Innovative, we innovated um, to make this happen and we deeply appreciate it, thank you. So look, as Monique said, you know, you have an amazing background in innovation. We're going to talk about, we're here to talk about innovation. Where to start is the big question on my mind. And I think a place to start is to say innovation is a word that is thrown around. And as you well know, of course, an incredible amount these days. Everyone loves to talk about innovation. Every, lots of people like to think they're doing it. What does the word mean to you? What does innovation mean to you? What does what does the word mean to you? What does doing innovation mean to you? Starting off small. Yeah. <laughs> no, Big question. Um, and actually, what you just outlined is something that makes me quite mad these days, because I'm almost embarrassed to talk about innovation these days, because it's this theater we're doing. Um, it's thrown around. Um, it's a lot of bullshit. I started off as a trend researcher. Um, you know, you were searching out these new and shiny things. Um, so my take on innovation is actually trying to keep the bullshit out of that and take it down a notch and bring it into reality. Uh, so into the real life of everyone, not only those living in the urban areas uh, of Amsterdam, London and Hamburg. <laughs> so how do you do that? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Right? <laughs> yeah. How do you um, take a step back from yeah from from the relentless innovation theatre and and yeah the kind of the relentless sort of chatter about innovation and ground it in something more more real? It's a challenge. So the first thing that always helps is to talk to real people and not only you know those use labs or user tests that a lot of companies are currently doing, but go out into the streets, go out into the homes of real human beings and um, kind of like leave your filter bubble as well. And you will see pretty fast that a lot of 
things that are super normal and super standard already to us is something completely alien to those people who are living in villages, cities, wherever. So this, this culture clash is something that I try to integrate as much as possible into my daily life um, to challenge my assumption, to challenge my ambitions, and also to challenge my ideas. And I can really advise everyone to do so, even though it sometimes hurts. <laughs> so, so how do you do that with, you, you work with, you know, some of the biggest German companies um, who might not on a regular basis have the same practice. So how do you make them understand that, you know, you have to take a step back and make it practical and visit your audience and how, do you take them along on a tour or what do you do to convince them that this is the right approach? Um, we kind of take them on a tour. So I think the first phase of a project, we always go a little bit on the nerves of our clients, to be fair, because we come with a lot of questions. So instead of just jumping to solutions, which is something that they would like to do, we instead pose a lot of fundamental questions. And um, we use a lot of ethnography and research in our um, practice. And for this to work, we actually take our clients with us. So we bring them into the homes of their customers And this is usually the eye-opening moment when they realize that um, it's a little bit different than they initially thought. Can, can you give an example of that? And I know you can't name the specific client, whatever, but an example of what one of them saw in a home that they hadn't thought about? Um, so let's take finance as a big topic these days. Um, so finance is a topic that people don't like to talk about because, you know, it's money, it's also... a It's privacy, it's related to jobs, to earnings, to status. Um, so what I think our clients always assume that people will jump into this discussion and talk about this online banking and how they are so avidly using all the tools. And instead, you come to this person, this human being who will completely shut down within the first 10 minutes because it's something so intimate. And then you suddenly end up in a conversation that is more around family, health. Uh, the children, safety, security, and all those human notions that actually revolve around this topic of finance. And you can really see in everyone's eyes that you suddenly see how this topic and also this abstract topic of finance is contextualized in something superhuman, super emotional. And this helps um, to challenge some assumptions, not always, but most of the time. So we really trust the process there. Interesting. Yes. I mean, of course, we're always searching for kind of takeaways for our audience. And it feels like one of the big, the big first takeaways is, you know, innovation starts with going out into the world and looking at and observing the people you're trying to serve. Is that fair? Yes, you know? definitely. Because um, I, I guess there's always that tension, you know, sometimes you hear, you know, like there's these classic stories, that are, you know, sort of Steve Jobs or uh, and, you know, quoting someone else saying, oh, you can't ask customers what they'll want. They don't know what they want. If you ask people what they want, they'll just tell you a faster horse. So you have to be very subtle about the way you approach that kind of research, I guess. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the other side is the the other pet favorite pet peeve of mine, where people just take for granted or take uh, very little what the users are saying and just, you know, kind of implement the user's idea, which also doesn't work because in that regard, um, Steve Jobs had a point. <laughs> um, it's really about understanding the context and the problem. And I mean, this is something that has been, I don't know, written in so many articles, so mm -hmm. many blogs, so many books, that it's really about understanding the problem first. 
but I've seen literally very few projects where that happens, where people take the time to really understand the problem and don't jump immediately to, you know, creative, new, shiny solutions and ideas that come straight out of genius brain. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So the kind of empathy to go out there and understand real people's lives and 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 identify the problem for them that you're trying to solve. I think organizations are great at well that they tend to want to innovate to solve their own problems rather yeah. than the customer's problem, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think this this whole notion of creativity kind of everybody wants to have this great idea. It's more about ourselves, about outshining our own intelligence kind of. And it's really not about that. I think the first step would be um, being very almost having this sort of humility of understanding how few and how little we actually know and the to realize that we need more people to actually solve this kind of problem, that we wouldn't be able to solve this on our own. There was a very interesting uh, quote uh, that I read from you, which was that you, you know your focus point is to unlock collective genius. And I think that's that's really interesting because it's true. There's this myth of the creative person who is more creative and smarter than everybody else. And we all have to look up to the Elon Musks and the Steve Jobs of the world and so forth, who are brilliant. No, no worries there. But so what do you what do you mean by unlocking collective genius and how do you do that? I mean, how do, do you get those people together to be creative together? Because that's the point, right? Yeah, that's exactly the point. It's, I think that's the hardest part of the innovation process because it means people working together who might not agree. <laughs> and I think this friction is super necessary to come up with solutions, but most of the people that I know don't naturally like to have this friction. And I think also that beside this um, myth of the creative genius, there's also the myth of the cross-functional team. I'm super pro cross-functional teams, but this is not what I call interdisciplinary thinking for innovation, because in a sense, it's simply not enough to put a designer, a strategist, an engineer, and maybe a researcher into a room, because the chances that they are still sharing the same perspective are very high. Instead, to solve the the problems that we face today that have consequences like sustainability, equality, and all those social uh, impacts, I think we need to extend the invitation to people who truly think differently. A chemist, a biologist, uh, I don't know, all of those things, I have no clue what they're doing <laughs> and still have to find a discussion point with. And And so in the processes, you know, when you work with companies, do you then Do you have a list of strange people you can invite to be part of the process? Or how do you go about it? I mean, really practically, how do you go about making those people part of the conversation to learn something new and to be creative together in a way? Mm, well, this might sound super weird, but I actually have this little book with people who tend to disagree most with me. And those are the people that I invite uh, first. Uh, because they challenge me the most. But this is obviously not always feasible when I work with clients. But we have certain people who um, are very, who have a very strong expertise in their domain and are still able to kind of convey their thinking to people from other areas. And those are the people that we um, are actually inviting and um, involving in our projects, if we are allowed. <laughs> And I've um, I've talked 
kind of obsessively uh, on this show before, well, and to Monique before and Ina about um, what kind of this new remote work world or this hybrid work world where people aren't coming to the office so often, what that might do to kind of organizational creativity and innovation. Like the, I've read very interesting research that suggests that um, you know, creative teams and innovative teams, there's a lot of, as you said, there's a lot of friction and there's a lot of informal kind of chit chat and just informal communication going on that's hard to replicate when we're not all in the same room together, when we're working remotely, when we're working in different time zones, you know, but it's all just through a screen. Does that, how do you think about that question? Do you think that it's going to be more difficult to innovate with remote teams? or that we'll find answers? How do you think that plays out? Um, to be completely honest, I think it has a very strong impact on creativity, this whole remote working thing. And for me personally, it just doesn't work. Um, I think remote, I mean, we've, we found ways of interacting with each other in a remote setting, no question about that. And we've found ways of structuring our day in a remote setting. But those interactions that you talk about, those where creativity sparks, where you yeah. play with each other's ideas, I haven't found a way that can replicate the same quality in thinking in a remote setting. And I, I'm an optimist <laughs> by nature, so I'm sure we'll maybe find a replacement. But the little old school brain in myself is also saying it will never fully replicate physical thinking <laughs> I feel the same way I mean we've all we've all well hopefully we've all had that sense of being in a team during a time that feels very creative and ending up with some something new that really works you know hopefully everyone's had that at some point in their career and for me like it's been a lot about just a team that sort of gels and there's it's not just about you know, the, the the mechanics of idea exchange. It's like, a, it's about just the emotional atmosphere, the emotional temperature and the relationships between the people and everyone's, you know, willing to speak and that everyone feels that it's okay to say something that's stupid because it doesn't matter and da, 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 all of that kind of stuff. It's very hard, right, to replicate over. I don't see how you get that for people who aren't all in a room together. No, no, but if, I, if you if you need people to be together for that, there's also a lot of work that maybe doesn't uh, force you to be together. So the the combinations might become quite different. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You, I mean, you, I already, think you already have your team back in in an office uh, at Sinnerschade. Not really. I mean, we have the option to meeting each other in smaller teams at the office, but um, it's just not the same. And I think what, what David pointed out, all those serendipitous moments and also meeting at the coffee machine or just running into each other or, I don't know, seeing a bird flying out of the window or stuff like that, it does something with us. And I think we just, it's hard, it's hard to imitate that. Yeah. So really what, looking the, forward. Yeah. What, one of the, the other themes that um, I know you work on is that, I mean, a lot of the innovation, I'm, I'm from the, the shiny side. Eh? I mean, conferences. Conferences are all about, you know, what's the new, new thing? Let's put it on stage. And what is the, but if you look at the much slower pace of innovation, um, you probably 
need to be working towards something much longer term, not what is hot and new this month and should result in something extra in six months. But So how do you do that? I mean, how do you define together with your clients what that long-term vision is? And then secondly, how do you sort of pace the innovation towards that long-term vision? Yeah, I think what, you, what you're saying is the most challenging part in a way to get people from this very short-term thinking, basically um, understanding the future as tomorrow to understanding the future as something in 10 years, for example. And um, what I really like is to reshape our perspective from thinking about the future to thinking about posterity. So something that we're leaving behind for others to experience, maybe even our children, grandchildren, whatever. Um, and I've made the experience or the learning that as soon as you make it very personal and very human, people actually have a pretty good idea of what true meaning could be um, when it comes to ideas. Just, you know, just doing, for example, a couch test. Imagine you're sitting not in the office, very important, but at home with your husband or your wife or your children or your best friend and explaining the idea that you're currently working on. If it's still a good idea, and if your friend gets it and thinks it's relevant, I think then you're on a good track. But all those very superficial ideas and also a lot of the stuff that I'm currently seeing around convenience, for example, would be actually something that wouldn't pass the couch test and would also not be something that you would be proud of leaving behind for your children. What, what, what do you mean by convenience? Just optimizing customer processes or what is the thing you mean by convenience? Yeah, I'm like if I have a look at the current themes that I see, I don't know, with startups in the innovation industry, there's so much stuff that makes our life or supposedly makes our life faster, simpler, more convenient. And I'm really tired of it because it reduces us to very lazy beings. <laughs> and I think, um, I don't know, having my groceries being shopped within 10 minutes is something nice. But is it something memorable? Is it something that I will, I don't know, remember in five years' time? I'm not so sure. And I am imagining a world um, where we design things for all those human aspects, not only convenience, where we're designing from grief, for surprise, for trust, for happiness, for crying, and not only for this very efficient way of thinking. And I think COVID has made my life, even though I was super privileged in a sense, very efficient. And it also showed me this is super boring. <laughs> <laughs> you want that commute, the boring, you know, waiting for the metro and everything. You, you want the, the friction. We need the friction. Yeah. It was actually the Dar Dara Dot, who couldn't make it today, gave a nice example. She works in a completely different field, but she works uh, in uh, areas where there were earthquakes or wars, and then people need to get a new house, and there's 3D printing of houses. And she said, it all sounds really good, but if you have lost your everything, rebuilding your own house is a very meaningful act to get ownership of your life back. So it was a very interesting observation that she was working on one thing, but she also observed the other thing because, you know, same what you're saying. <sighs> yeah. These, um, you know, these um, kind of human needs that you talked about, you know, happiness, grief, you know, excitement, whatever it is, connection. Um, it reminds me of a part of the of your brilliant chapter in the book where you talk about 
you know, innovation has to be grounded in some vision of your purpose as a as an organization. Um, how do you how can have you helped organizations sort of discover what that purpose is? And, and what can they do to try to figure that out? I mean, I ima my imagination is you go into clients and they often don't have a very clear sense of organizational purpose. Like, what are we here to serve? Is that a common problem? Yeah, it definitely is. And I think it requires some sort of self-reflection first, because purpose is usually also the things that makes your organization unique. And if you're part of that organization, you usually don't realize that. I mean, if you ask me now what's super unique about you, I would probably not be able to tell you because it's you who would observe it, right? Um, and what I see is that clients mistake innovation also with imitating what's up and coming. So, you know, they go to these amazing conferences and see all those things. And then two years later, they just say, okay, we want this only in blue. Um, and true innovation or what, what you um, said, I think it requires an attitude. It requires taking a stance. And this requires courage. And this requires also re yeah, this courage to fail that we're always talking about. And I don't see it very often that companies really try to do something differently, but rather imitate what's currently hip. And this is really, this is nothing this is not really connected to purpose from my I, point I, of view. I guess if you have a clear sense of purpose that helps you that helps you avoid the temptation to constantly just do the next fashionable thing because that you have a kind of guiding star to help you know where you should be going but is your sense of purpose must does it have to be what should it be grounded in? Should it be grounded grounded in, you know, a need that the customer has that, you know, our purpose is to serve that need? Or is it, can it be grounded in a, a kind of vision of a better world that you want to create? I think for me, it has to be grounded in what the company is actually good at or strength, so, um, self-understanding, then some sort of values that are shared by humans. Um and some sort of authenticity. So one really good example, I was not involved in that one, so the credit doesn't go out to me, but to other really amazing people, is this uh, mobility service, Moya, from uh, Volkswagen. So you could have argued, why would they introduce another mobility service when there are already so many out there? But what they really achieved is creating something completely new, because the, the the complete vehicle introduced the sense of privacy and silence and it was completely different to for example a cab ride or some sort of other mobility service because the whole interior the the, the choice of drivers the experience created the sense of uh, almost being in a cocoon and i think this really really connected well not only to the brand and not only to their experience as car uh, producers, but also to this need of having um, access to flexible mobility. And this, for me, was something that probably not a lot of people had expected <laughs> from a German car automotive brand. Um, but that was an excellent example. All right, we have people watching from Chicago, Munich, and Copenhagen. So. I 
we're going to get wow. to their questions in just a second. Um, but I was wondering, um, how did you end up where you are? I mean, how do you become an innovation director, you know, working with these companies? What, what is the, the, the skill that you bring or the, the education that you had that made you the prime person for this? Just curious. <laughs> so, I would, so when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a detective. <laughs> and in a way, I am just that, to be honest. And a colleague of mine said once, you're addicted to curiosity and to exploring new things. And I've never planned my career or say, okay, I want to go into patient. I'm just super curious and understanding things that I have no clue about. And this brought me into trend research. And this was amazing. I mean, David, you know. <laughs> and at some point, I wanted to bring these ideas also to life. And this then made me make the move to being a strategist and a consultant in a way. Can, can I ask you, what is the project so far that you are most proud of? I mean, what, what change was made because of your involvement that you think like, that's exactly, that's what I'm about. And I know you can't mention the client, but just the idea. Um, I would say it was, um, let me under, uh, let me think uh, how I can. audience are now waiting for you to say, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't do that. But it's, uh, it was really about um, working together with a client, not as a, consultant that knows better but more really as a team digging down through all the dirt <laughs> to find this uh, this concept that made sense and um, we shifted a service or they were a provider um, that was more or less active in the um, realms of mobility and we were able to shift them to health and this was um, yeah it I love that project because it made so much sense in the aftermath looking back on it you could argue why did they do it uh, sooner? Um, but it was a very, very radical change, not only in their portfolio, but also in their organization. And that, um, yeah, was so much fun working for. Sounds really impressive. Questions from the audience. All right, where shall we start? Um, first one, how do you help clients to get away from copying others and get them to take a unique approach? Tough, tough call. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend that I've solved this for good. <laughs> I'm still practicing and learning uh, one project at a time. But what I've learned is that being very, very honest from the beginning is a good step. So even threatening that the project won't happen, I think it's an essential, uh, it's an essential point to be honest about what you really think of the idea and if you think it's credible. And I think it also, one point is also about consulting things they shouldn't do. Um, because this creates trust, and I know it's super hard, um, but this step-by-step -step has helped me or has helped us in um, yeah, creating this understanding that it's not about imitating others, but finding your own creativity ground. And also, this is actually a more pra practical thing now that I'm thinking about it, um, involving users, involving human beings, because they can give feedback immediately that has nothing to do with politics or yourself or your own opinion. And if they value what is happening or if they value your ideas, you have a very strong advocate. So we have a, an interesting second question. Do you have um, examples of 
companies that you think get innovation right? Um, yes, uh, I love everything that Lego is doing, and it's nothing digital, by the way. <laughs> they they really understood what play means and how play evolves, and I really um, admire what they do. And I would always, I I've always wanted to work there at one point. Um, I fell in love with this one startup idea. It's called, um, it's a startup in Sweden, The Economy. Um, they created a credit card or a bank account that is tied to your um, sustainability index or your CO2, um, how do you say that? Uh, Footprint. Footprint, thank you. Yeah. And um, they have this hook that you can set yourself a limit. And once you overstep that limit by purchasing some sort of things, clothing, whatever, the credit card shuts down, so you cannot spend any money. And I love because it's radical um, and new and fresh and daring. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay, one last question from the audience. Um, this is a very big philosophical question, but how do human values translate into business value? Can they be translated? Are they opposite to each other? But the question is, how do human values translate into business value? Very hard question. Um, I would say they don't have to be fully the same to be able to work together. Um, one example that I'm always thinking about is, um, for example, Olympus, which used to be a camera um, production company, and they shut down producing camera for private persons. And to be fair, this is now a bold move because I don't know the reasons for doing that. But I assume it also has to do with the fact that we all have our iPhones and smartphones and whatever. And there's really no reason to have a camera that has even better functions as a private person. And they completely shifted to providing medical instruments. And I think it's super interesting because I'm sure they make a lot of money with it, but suddenly their products are not in the leisure fun segment, but it's about saving people's lives. And I think this is a great match and you, would, you don't even need Olympus to be about saving people's lives to make it work. And I think these are the kinds of um, fits that are incredibly hard to see and to notice, but that are the way forward. Because I also truly, I'm not a naive person that believes that we can shift all companies working towards values without them also making money. We are almost going to the last segment of the show. So actually, my question is, is that if you, you speak to our audience who are in companies and very often the people watching the show are, you know, the, the people that are ahead, that, that, you know, are aware of things going on and they want to innovate and they're in companies where this, this is not always easy for a lot of reasons. So for those people, the innovators and the creatives within those companies, what would you advise them to do? What's your advice to them? Um, I think connect, and this goes a little bit back to your first questions and also your ideas from the, or your notions from what's happening currently. I think COVID has all put us in our little pigeonholes again. Um, let's get out there again and I mean whether that is on a conference or in a slack channel or via LinkedIn or whatever but reach out to people who do something completely different than you do and they I'm sure they will understand some of your problems 
but they will always offer a different perspective. And that also helps me sometimes to, you know, take, take a step back from whole, this whole shiny innovation uh, thing. Um, yeah. Because and, there are also more important things. <laughs> and to be honest, also, it also makes you a better human to speak to people with completely different experiences. So it's not only about You're right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Great tip. There's one last thing we have to do. And this is our next segment. Thank you, Monique. Okay, Christina, imagine this. It is the near future and amid an increasingly acute crisis on planet Earth, a crack team of technologists have hatched a daring plan. They will travel along with a thousand pioneers far beyond the solar system to a new planet, the planet next one. And there they will establish a permanent base, a new home for human beings. Christina, thanks to your outstanding achievements in the field of innovation, you have been chosen to be among the first 1,000 pioneers to travel to next one. Before you board the spaceship, there are five big questions you need to answer. So let's see question number one. Name one luxury physical object you'd like to take to your new home. My coffee machine. Excellent choice. I think I agree. I think it would be coffee machine for me too. Done. You can take your coffee machine. Let's see number two. Awesome. Which book should everyone read before they board the spacecraft to go to next one? Okay, I have a book, but I'm very scared of pronouncing the author because I'm so gonna fail pronouncing his name. So sorry about that, Roman. <laughs> it's uh, How to Be a Good Ancestor from Roman Krishnarik, I think. Yes, I know. I've seen that book. I haven't read it yet. Do it. <laughs> it's that, it's it really, really good. Great. And, it, and tell us what it's about. Um, it's really about shifting from short-term thinking to long-term thinking and why it's so hard for us to be able to do that. Perfect. And of course, you know, when you get to next one, you're not coming back to Earth. You're there for the long term. So that is a very useful set of things to think about. Done. Um, question number three. Name one exceptional person who should qualify to be among the first 1,000 pioneers. Your family uh, and so on, your, you know, your immediate family are already going with you, so you don't have to worry about them, but one exceptional person who should be on the ship with you. Astrid Lindgren, I think. Aha, tell us <laughs> about that person. Um, well, I think everyone is always looking for smart people. I would like good stories. And she's, I don't know, the best storyteller there is. Storytelling is important and it's going to be a long journey. So that's that will be useful. Um, question number four. Create one law that bans something from the planet next one forever. Um, I'm going to ban untruth uh -huh. do you think that might ever get awkward you know like um, your partner says how do I do I look good today and you have to be like well no <laughs> definitely but I would give it a try 
Okay, all right. We're willing. Well, we're willing to give it a try. The next one will be a radically honest society. Um, and your final question, question number five. Name one tradition from planet Earth that should be replicated on next one. A lot of people are going to hate me for this, but I'm so going to name birthdays because I just love them. Birthdays. Yeah, okay. Yes. Birthdays can be replicated and everyone is going to have to be totally honest about their birthday and their age on next one. Okay, <laughs> pick up your coffee machine, board this craft. You are on your way to next one. Good luck. Let us know how it goes there. Um, thank you so much, Christina. Enjoy the voyage. Thank you so much, Christina. That was such a great pleasure having you. And also thank you for being so spontaneously on the show today. Just amazing. It's always a big inspiration to listen to you, I have to say. Should you in the audience watch this um, on demand, I invite you to go to NextConfeu so you can also sign up for the live show experience, which would be great. And thank you especially to the audience and the great questions you had there. There was some agreement there on, on many things you said. Um, and a great pleasure. So hope to see you in June when we will welcome futurist Amy Webb. She advises CXOs of the world's most admired companies and is the founder of Future Today Institute, a leading foresight and strategy firm that helps leaders and organizations prepare for complex futures. And Forbes called her one of the five women changing the world. You might know her if you uh, watch South by Southwest regularly. She always um, offers her trends insights there. So we will talk about it with her in June. So thank you for watching today. And a big thank you to the team behind the scenes, Stefan, René, Merle, Harshit and Juliane. And of course, a big thank you to our partners, Accenture Interactive and Factor 3, our media partner T3N and our website, and live stream partner 23. So thank you for watching and hope to see you in June.